0: It's time for February birthday shoutouts. I've been really excited at all the feedback from people who have really enjoyed getting their shout-outs. So I'm glad that you appreciate these as much as I appreciate your support over on Patreon. I want to send a very happy birthday to Catherine, Sherry, Danny, Edie, Greg, Jen, Jenny, Jennifer, Karen, KDB, Katie KDM, Katie Laura, Marissa, Marty, Megan. Sharon, and Susanna. Thank you so much for your support, and I really hope you have an amazing birthday, birth month, you know me. We celebrate all month long. So have a piece of cake for me, and happy birthday. (laughs) When an 18-year-old was accused of a horrific crime, public opinion was in his favor. By mortgaging their homes, the people of Litchfield County, Connecticut, helped pay for his defense. But would public support be enough to prove his innocence? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crimelines. This case was suggested by Sherry, so thank you so much for sending it in. One more suggestion knocked off the list. Only 287 left to go. But before we jump into this episode, I do want to announce that one of my friends, Tani Plattis, the host of the Death is Hilarious podcast, is an amazing audiobook narrator, and she just voiced a new book that is out now. This is hashtag not an ad, but if you do like books like Sharp Objects or Big Little Lies, which are two that I loved, this is an award-winning book by Natalie Simons called Lies in Bone. It is a small-town mystery about family secrets and murder, and it's just a tragic and chilling story. I'm going to leave the link to the book on Audible in the show notes in case you are interested in listening to Lies in Bone and hearing Tawny's amazing narration skills. I just adore Tawny, and I wanted to shout this out because I am big sister-style proud of everything she has accomplished. So let's get into today's episode. This case took place in my home state of Connecticut, And it happened in the Canaan area. This is the northwest corner near the borders of Massachusetts and New York. All of my sources are linked in my show notes, but I do want to mention a couple at the top. There are two books on this case. One is Guilty Until Proven Innocent by Donald S. Connery, and the other is Death in Canaan by Joan Barthel. I also want to mention the Hartford Current, which had a number of journalists covering this case in detail over the decades since it first happened. This case starts with Barbara Gibbons. She was born in November 1921 in Berlin, Germany. She did have a bit of a journey to end up in Connecticut. Her father was in the import-export business, which I somehow had in my head as something that scammers say to explain why they have money with no obvious business but it is an actual legitimate job it's just basically facilitating the purchase of international goods to be sold domestically and then you buy things domestically to sell them overseas when barbara was little her family first moved to england but her father's business went under and they ended up moving to new york city Her father found enough success that they lived in New York while also having a cottage home in Falls Village, Connecticut. After finishing high school, Barbara spent two years at New York University in their pre-med program before she dropped out for financial reasons. Barbara got a job at an insurance company in New York City and seemed to live a fairly typical single working woman life. Then, in 1955, at the age of 33, she gave birth to a son. Barbara did not have a serious boyfriend at the time, and she never told anyone who the father was, not even her child. She named him Peter Riley, and this is something else she never fully explained, at least to other people's satisfaction. Why the last name Riley rather than giving him her last name? Maybe she just liked how it sounded. Barbara was unconventional in a number of ways, which is something that will come up again in this episode. When Peter was still little, Barbara left New York and moved in with her parents in their Connecticut cottage. She found work at another insurance company nearby. Barbara's father was really hands-on with Peter, and they were close. Peter was also close to his grandmother, Hilda, but Barbara and Hilda did not get along. That caused a lot of tension in the home. When Peter was 10, Barbara and Peter moved out and away from Hilda. When Peter was 12, they then moved again into a small, one-bedroom home in Falls Village. At some point, Barbara lost her job. She was fired. She briefly worked at the gas station across the street from their home, but that also didn't last. Barbara then made ends meet through a combination of welfare benefits and the help of a wealthy friend from New York. This friend was also named Barbara so to avoid confusion with the names I'll call her B which is what she's called in the book Death in Canaan The money sent from B was mostly for Peter's sake she's been described as his godmother though that is not a formal designation Barbara wasn't religious and hadn't had Peter baptized, but B was certainly trying to look out for Peter and make sure he wasn't going without. By 1972, both of Barbara's parents had died, with her father predeceasing her mother. Hilda's will then left the estate to another relative, not Barbara or Peter, which really confirms that the rift between mother and daughter had not healed. It seems like it was a mix between an overbearing mother and a very unique daughter. Barbara was very intelligent. She was a well-read woman, but she struggled managing the usual adult things that we all have to do, and she really started struggling with these as she got older. By older, I just mean in her 40s. We aren't talking about dementia, but there may have been some mental health issues happening. Those who knew her characterized her as on a decline. She hadn't always struggled with these things. In fact, she had managed a career as a single mother in the 1950s, but then she lost her job. She couldn't hold down another one. Her house was a disaster, dirty clothes and dishes all around, and she didn't always make reasonable financial decisions given how tight things were money-wise. It didn't help that Barbara may have been an alcoholic. A lot of the reporting points to Barbara's drinking, so it was at least to the level that it interfered with her life in negative ways. The alcohol may have been an attempt at self-medication, but it made things worse. Without a job to occupy her time and with Peter busy with high school, after school activities and friends, Barbara spent most of her time reading library books and writing. She would also entertain herself by making mischief in ways you may not expect from someone who is in their late 40s or early 50s. One example is that she sent a story to the local paper about a truffle hunt Being held in a specific area. The paper did not fact check this event before they ran it. So there was an announcement for this entirely fictional truffle hunt. The day advertised, Barbara watched with amusement as people gathered to the area and started looking for where to go for this event. A local priest told Joan Barthel, the author of Death in Canaan, that if Barbara was rich, she'd be eccentric, but she wasn't, so she was just an oddball. Another way Barbara stood out in the early 1970s was that she was an unmarried woman who was rumored to entertain men in her home. If that rumor was true. Barbara did this only when Peter wasn't home because Peter was not aware of it. And he would have known. This house had four rooms with one bedroom that they shared. Barbara and Peter slept in a bunk bed, so he would know if there was someone else in the house while he was there. But the two did manage with the lack of space and privacy okay, and Peter and Barbara were really close. But with Barbara not being very good at being an adult in most situations, they did end up with a relationship that was more like peers. So when they argued, it would be on that level rather than a parent to child. But they generally calmed down and got over whatever tiff they had quickly. Peter's friends liked Barbara because she was pretty relaxed about things and she seems like, you know, the cool mom. As for Peter, he was a well-liked kid. He was a good student. He was a little bit on the quiet side, but otherwise very typical. On September 28th, 1973, like the typical teen he was, Peter went to school. Sometimes he would drive himself, but this day Barbara needed the car that they shared to run some errands, so Peter got a ride to and from school with a friend. While he was in school, Barbara drove to Canaan to buy a new wallet and a new light jacket. She charged the cost of these items, which meant she didn't pay for them. Her store credit bill would be sent to Peter's godmother, B. Barbara needed the new wallet because her old one had been stolen out of the home a week or so before. When it was stolen, it had around $100 to $120 in cash in it. Around noon, Barbara stopped at the optometrist's office to pick up a new pair of glasses and have them adjusted. At some point in the day, Barbara also cashed a $100 check from B. This would be more like $600 in today's money. The check had come with a somewhat exasperated note from B. It basically told Barbara that she needed to get a job. It also said, my resources have had it. And this wasn't the first or only indication that B planned to stop financially supplementing Barbara's life. Barbara would have headed home from these errands to be home by two. That's when Peter got back from school. And even though he was 18 and a senior in high school, Barbara was always around when he got there after school. Peter came home and saw that Barbara was at the gas station across the street talking to the clerk, which wasn't uncommon. So Peter went over there, too, and then Barbara and Peter walked back to their house. Peter said that they played cards together until Peter's friend Jeff Maddow called and asked Peter if he wanted to go somewhere with him. Peter said yes, and Jeff picked him up. This would have been around 3 p.m., after this, Barbara went to the package store or to dig deep in my New England roots. She went to the packy. A package store, a packy is a liquor store. While there Barbara bought a gallon of SS Pierce sherry. Barbara then went to the grocery store and was home around 6:30 based on a witness statement. Peter got home about 15 minutes later and he said Barbara was a little annoyed with him. Because he was late, they usually would eat dinner together, but when he got there, she was already eating. Peter didn't stay home for terribly long because he and his friends were going to a youth group meeting in Canaan. They left around 7.20 and Barbara was watching TV. Peter drove himself this time because his friend Jeff didn't have enough gas to bring Peter all the way home after the meeting. The car Peter drove really stood out. It was a blue Corvette with a cloth top. The car had been purchased, of course, by B, but it wasn't in great working shape at this point. Still, it was what they had, and it was unique, which is pretty important to the story. Peter went to the youth meeting and then left the center around 9.30 p.m., Based on witnesses, it could not have been any earlier than 9:30, but it could have been closer to 9:40. Peter's friend John asked for a ride home first, so Peter dropped him off with John walking in the door at 9:45 according to John's aunt. Peter then went home, it would have been about a 5-minute drive. Peter said he pulled in front of the house around 9:50 and he had to first fix the headlight. Like I said, this car had some mechanical issues, and this was apparently a common one with the car. So after he fixed the headlight, he walked in the front door and called out to his mom. She didn't answer, so he looked in the bedroom, expecting to see her in bed already, but she wasn't there. That's when he looked to the floor and saw Barbara lying in a pool of blood, She was partially nude, and he could hear her struggling to breathe. Peter ran to the phone to call for help. This was before 911, so he first called his friend Jeff's family, and this made sense since Jeff's father ran an ambulance. He told them that Barbara was hurt and needed help. They said they were on their way and for Peter to call a doctor. Peter called Information to get the number for their family doctor, Dr. Carl Bornman. But when Peter called Dr. Bornman, he was told the doctor wasn't there and he should call the Sharon Hospital. So Peter hung up and he called Information again, got the number to the hospital and called there. The attendant on the phone asked if Barbara was breathing, and Peter said that she had either stopped or almost stopped breathing by that point. He was asked if he did or if he could do CPR, and he said he didn't know how. He also said he had already contacted an ambulance, so the nurse said she would call the police for him. She then called the state police. It was at 10.02 p.m. that the first state trooper arrived at the house. When he got there, Peter was outside. He had moved his car to make way for the ambulance, and he had put his hazard lights on so they would know where to stop in the dark. The trooper went inside and checked Barbara for a pulse. He didn't find one. 51-year-old Barbara Gibbons was dead. When more investigators got to the small cottage to process the scene, they found it difficult due to the general state of the house. There were dirty clothes and dirty dishes, pots, pans, and just general clutter and dirt all around. And Peter and his friend Jeff had, thinking they were helping, started moving things out of the way to allow for a gurney to get in. Peter, it seems, didn't realize that they wouldn't be bringing Barbara to the hospital that it was far too late for that. At the scene, Peter was asked to unbutton his shirt and show his hands so they could check him for any blood or marks. He had neither aside from some minor redness on one knuckle. They then had him sit in a police cruiser and took his statement after they read him his Miranda warning. Now, the Miranda warning, the whole you have the right to remain silent thing, does not have to be given to witnesses. It's only when the police suspect someone of involvement and are questioning them from that angle. But this was 1973, and a lot of the fine-tuning of the Miranda warning and when it needed to be given and when it didn't wouldn't be worked out until future lawsuits, So, if this happened in say 2003, reading Peter his rights would indicate that the police thought this was a suspect. But in 1973, it could just be seen as them being extra cautious. That said, investigators would later say that Peter's behavior that night seemed off. He supposedly just walked in on this brutal scene likely heard his mother's final breaths, her death rattle, and he seemed really calm about it. He had really no other close family, and now his mother was dead, and he didn't seem all that bothered by it. This type of detachment is a trauma response, and it's not an uncommon one. It's disturbing to me whenever I read about these cases that your trauma response can be used as evidence against you. And not just your response, it's the police officer's interpretation and perception of your trauma response that is the evidence. And this police officer may or may not have any actual training or education on the topic. So Peter calmly sat in that police cruiser and gave his account of what happened and the timeline, which is basically what we've already gone over. He also told the police that he didn't know who would have murdered his mother or wanted to. Peter was then taken to the station for more questioning, and in the meantime, the house was searched. The police found the back door to the house was open, which Peter said was uncommon, They usually left it closed and locked. To get to that door, you had to go through the bedroom, so it's not like you would use it for guests. They found a fingerprint by that back door that could not be matched to Peter. There was also a bloody footprint on the bedroom floor carpet, and Peter's shoes did not have blood on them. Missing from the house were a few things. One was a ring Barbara wore all the time it had three small diamonds, and it was a gift from a family member also gone was the brand new wallet that Barbara bought that day, and whatever cash was left from the check that B had sent, so it could have been as much as one hundred dollars. The only money found in the house was some spare change worth around sixteen cents. As for a possible murder weapon at the scene, take your pick. We'll get into Barbara's injuries in a minute, but she died from multiple stab wounds. They found a machete, ice pick, kitchen knives, one fish knife with a broken tip, and later a straight razor. All of these were taken into evidence to check for any remains of blood. Now, one of the oddest things about this scene, in my view, was Barbara's clothing. They were wet. Her jeans and her underwear, which were near her body were wet, but Barbara herself was not wet, and neither was the rug under her. It was just her clothes, and from what it sounds like, her pants weren't just damp. They were truly soaking wet. It sounds like someone may have washed them before dropping them back near the body. So let's get into the state Barbara was found in. This assault was brutal. There were a number of injuries noted on the autopsy. She had a broken nose. She had a stab wound through one hand that was likely a defensive wound. She had multiple stab wounds to her lower back. She had a gash to her abdomen. She had broken ribs and both femurs were broken. There were signs of sexual assault with an object. And finally, her throat had been cut to where it's been described as a near decapitation. Barbara died from blood loss and asphyxiation due to the aspiration of blood. Something else peculiar showed on the autopsy. Barbara's legs had been broken, according to the medical examiner, after death. So if Peter came home while Barbara was still breathing, how is this possible? unless he broke her legs. So keep that in the back of your mind and let's get into the interrogation of Peter that was happening even as the crime scene was still being processed. Both Guilty Until Proven Innocent and Death in Canaan have transcripts from the various interviews done with Peter if you want it in all the context. We would be here for several hours if I read them to you because, well, that's how long they went on for. Peter first sat in the police cruiser for around three hours until about 1.45 a.m. on September 29th when they then drove him to the barracks. He then sat there for another four hours before the first recorded interview started. I want to point out that this means this interview started around 6 a.m., meaning Peter had been awake since he had gotten up for school the day before. So he had been awake for 23 to 24 hours. Peter also hadn't eaten since lunch the day before, except for a snack. So even under ideal circumstances, Peter would be vulnerable to questioning. But he had also just found his only parent dead the night before, so this was far from ideal. Peter spoke with an investigator for about two hours after he waived his rights. He didn't make any incriminating statements, and even though this interview was recorded, something happened with the tape and it was all garbled. At this point, 8 a.m., Peter was allowed to go lie down. He dozed off eventually, but was woken up a few hours later to go take a polygraph. Peter wanted to take the test to prove his innocence, They left Canaan at 12.40 to go to Hartford for the test. But before giving him the test, they did a pre-interview. Between the pre-interview, the polygraph, and the post-interview, where they then lied to him and told him he failed the polygraph, Peter was questioned for around six more hours. When they told Peter that the lie detector found he was being deceptive, They pushed the idea that sometimes people can black out when they do something like this. In the transcripts, you can tell that Peter did not know how the machine worked. He seemed to think the lie detector could tell if he was lying, even if he thought he was telling the truth, like something that could look deep into his mind. But that's not how they work. Polygraphs work by checking physiological changes that occur when someone is knowingly being deceptive. If you believe you're telling the truth, you won't show these changes. Peter told the police he didn't think he did it, but if he did do it and blocked it out, they would be able to find evidence of that. They pointed to the polygraph as evidence that his mind knew the truth, but Peter said, well, I'm sure there will be more evidence. Of what really happened. But they kept asking Peter if it was possible he killed his mother but didn't remember it, and Peter gave the only answer there is to that suggestion. He asked how would he know if he had a lapse in memory because obviously he wouldn't remember it. That is what a lapse in memory is. It's interesting to read this transcript and see that Peter was really probably the most intelligent person in the room during all of this. And I don't mean that to say he was trying to outsmart the police, just that he was smart enough that he saw the holes in the logic of what they were saying. But the issue is that Peter was also naive and he was young. He believed the police had the best intentions, his best intentions, You can read in the transcripts that he trusted the police and thought they were trying to help him figure out what happened. He thought they were on his side. We know that once they read your Miranda warning, the police are not on your side. But this was an 18-year-old. He was still in high school. He had dreams of being a state trooper himself, being one of the good guys, he just didn't know or appreciate the adversarial position he was in. The police, of course, did not actually think Peter had blacked out killing his mother. They believed he killed Barbara and that he knew he killed her. They were just trying to get him a step closer to a confession that wasn't a full confession. Not, did you do it, but Is it possible you could have done it? They then took it another step and offered a lesser offense to confess to. Maybe this was an accident that escalated. Maybe Barbara had come at him first or started the fight. This approach of taking little steps towards a confession is common in interrogations that are designed to elicit a confession. And the more the police suggested possible scenarios to Peter, the more he started questioning himself. He even asked if he could see a psychiatrist to try to help him remember what happened because he was getting confused. He then started proposing scenarios of his own as to what could have happened. And he came up with some kind of confession that was largely a construction of the ideas the police had fed him. In spite of all these different scenarios that were proposed in the interviews, Peter's written confession was actually rather short. The only part that deviated from his original statements and timeline was the actual murder part. He said he went into the house that night and thought Barbara was in the bed, but then somehow she was on the floor— and he remembered slashing at her with the straight razor that he used for balsa wood carving. Then he said he remembered jumping on her legs. Then he picked back up with the same story about who he called for help and what happened there. And with this confession, Peter Riley was charged with murder. Though his confession was so short and only mentions two of the injuries Barbara sustained, the slashed throat and the broken legs, we do still have some contradictions with the evidence. For one thing, he jumped on his mother's bloody legs without getting any of the blood on him. He also cut her throat without any blood getting on him. And they had multiple witnesses who said the clothes Peter was in when his mother was found dead were the same ones he wore to the youth center. So he didn't change, or if he did, he changed into nearly identical clothing and somehow got rid of the bloody clothes so well that a full search of the area couldn't find them. Peter also said he had used the razor in the attack, but the razor tested negative for blood. Only one knife in the house tested positive for human blood, and it was found near the kitchen. Without DNA, it wasn't possible to say whether this was definitely Barbara's blood or not, but even with the technology at the time with blood typing, they couldn't say it was possibly Barbara's blood because there wasn't enough blood on it to test. And then, of course, we have evidence that someone else was at the scene that night. We have a fingerprint, a shoe print, and the open back door. The timeline here should also have given the investigators some pause. In a span of 8 to 13 minutes, Peter parked the car, killed his mother in a way that inflicted multiple injuries, cleaned up, and made five phone calls. This timeline became a major issue going forward, so you're going to get tired of me talking about it by the end of this episode, guaranteed. Guaranteed. Going into trial, the state tried really hard to stretch this timeline out to the maximum possible window, which they said was closer to 20 minutes. Prior to trial, Peter did recant his confession. He actually recanted it very soon after giving it. And when the citizens of Litchfield County found out that Peter had been arrested and that he said he falsely confessed, they jumped into action. I don't know that we've ever covered a case like this before. The public believed Peter was innocent and they began fundraising for his bail and for his legal defense. They had yard sales, bake sales, and did everything else they could to raise these funds. And that would eventually include mortgaging their own homes. When Peter went to trial in the spring of 1974, he had the support of the community. The state's attorney asked for the case to be delayed due to this publicity. We often see this from the defense, but this time there was so much community support for Peter that the worry was the jury would be biased in his favor. The state just wanted to delay it for a couple of months to let the media storm calm down, but the judge denied this. Whatever influence the media had on the jury just was not enough to justify delaying the trial and infringing on Peter's right to a speedy trial. Though they lost that motion, the state won the biggest pretrial battle. Peter's written confession and selections from the recorded interviews would be heard by the jury. Another issue that came up was the maybe murder weapon, the knife from the house that had blood on it. It had a smear of human blood on the blade, but like I said, it wasn't even enough to do blood typing. The defense said it was a warrantless search, whereas the state argued it was part of the crime scene. We've talked about this before, that the police can search a crime scene, but they can't go rifling through drawers without a warrant. This came up in the Ziegler Furniture Store case where they took files out of a filing cabinet. This knife wasn't a bit of a gray zone. It wasn't out in the open. It wasn't laying near the body. It was in a pouch near the kitchen. However, the handle was sticking out and the handle was in plain view. So was that visible enough to not need a warrant? When the state first brought the knife up during the trial, the defense objected, and the state dropped it before the judge could rule. But then they brought it up again later, and the judge at this point did rule that it was admissible. The knife wasn't definitively established as the murder weapon, but it was important to the state because it fit their theory of the crime and contradicted the defense. Because why would a killer who was not attached to the house bother to rinse and put away a knife? Only someone who cared to conceal it as the murder weapon would have done that. And the defense theory of the crime involved the killer going out the back door. So why would the killer walk through the house, rinse the knife and put it away only to then cross back over the house by Barbara's body on his way out back? If this knife was the murder weapon, it definitely favored the case against Peter Riley. Another thing that stood out in this case is something prosecutors have to do in cases like this, and that is not only explain the evidence, but explain the lack of evidence, like how Peter carried out this bloody murder without getting a speck of blood on him. They had the medical examiner testify that, in his opinion, someone could have attacked Barbara and not gotten much blood on them. Part of that is because of how her shirt was up around her neck, which possibly would have blocked some spatter. Anything Peter did get on him, he could have washed off. But to me, even if it was possible the killer wasn't covered in blood... I just don't see how there wouldn't have been at least a transfer of blood, particularly if they're trying to say Peter jumped on Barbara's bloody legs. Another issue the state had was the motive. It's not necessary to prove this, technically speaking, but it's always nice to have. Peter and his mother got along well, but when they did argue, they would sometimes argue in front of people. So the prosecution had witnesses testify to their various arguments, but They didn't have anyone testify that these ever turned physically violent. One thing Peter and Barbara would argue about was their car. Barbara really liked it, but Peter did not. It was flashy, but it was small and he could barely fit his musical equipment into it. And it was just one mechanical problem after another. But being that it was a Corvette, they could sell it in the condition it was in and still make enough to buy a more reliable vehicle that's what the state presented as the sort of tension between Peter and his mother that led to her murder. So as for a motive, it does seem pretty weak. And then we have the timeline. So here we go. Let's get into it. Barbara had a phone call at 935 with a doctor. This doctor said Barbara seemed agitated on the call, but she talked freely about private matters as though she was alone in the house. That is the last confirmed time we have Barbara alive. According to Peter, he got home around 9.50. So from the defense's point of view, this meant that someone entered the home, killed Barbara, and ran out the back door, maybe even when they heard Peter pull up. Peter entered the house while Barbara was taking her final breaths. So this is a 15 minute window that someone else could have committed the murder, but the state had a witness to contradict that. It was the nurse who answered Peter's call to the hospital on the night of the murder. She is also named Barbara, and she testified that the call came in at 9:40. She said she was sure of the time because it corresponded with an ambulance arrival. However, she did not log the call specifically. If Peter got home earlier in time to make a 9.40 phone call, there absolutely would not have been time for anyone else to have attacked Barbara. The nurse Barbara also testified that she called the state police after getting off the phone with Peter. The state police did log the call. It came in at 9.58. So nurse Barbara's insistence that Peter called her at 9.40 meant that she got a call saying a woman was not breathing and there was blood everywhere, but then waited 18 minutes to call the police. Unfortunately, it does not look like Peter's defense jumped on this massive inconsistency. I think it's much more likely that the nurse was misremembering the time or confused it with a different call that came in but the state did use this to show that their timeline gave Peter way more time to commit the crime and to clean up than the defense's timeline. But let's say Peter was home and attacking his mom by 9.40. Why did he call for help then? Surely he couldn't have expected the hospital to wait 18 minutes to call the police. He wouldn't have known he had 20 minutes before help arrived. The phone call coming in at 940 contradicts the state's case, but apparently they needed this to try to expand his window of opportunity. The timeline was the biggest issue for the state, and they took some leaps in logic to try to get it to fit, because otherwise they just had Peter's wishy-washy confession. There was some forensic evidence presented, but that could go either way. There were six hairs found in Barbara's closed hand. Two were similar to Peter's, one was similar to Barbara, one was excluded from being from either of them, and then there were two more that couldn't be ruled out or matched. Even if hair analysis was 100%, which we know it's not, but let's say it was, the two hairs similar to Peter's hair had no bulb attached, so they weren't yanked out. These could have been from the floor Barbara was lying on when she was killed. Barbara and Peter weren't exactly on top of the vacuuming. It seems more relevant that there was one hair that didn't match either of them in her hand because it would have been much less likely for her to pick up someone else's hair from her bedroom floor. The defense case was that, surprise, the timeline didn't fit and that Peter's confession was the product of a young, tired, and confused kid who just experienced trauma. The defense had multiple witnesses to back up their timeline, including people at the teen center who said Peter could not have possibly left before 9.30 and likely left after that. They had his friend John who said he was dropped off at 9.45. Peter would then need about five minutes to get home, putting him home at 9.50, which is what he said all along. They also had the other people who received phone calls testify that their phone calls came after 9.50. It was only this one nurse who somehow got a phone call 10, 15 minutes before everyone else. Peter did take the stand in his own defense to recant his confession to the jury. For jury instructions, the judge told them that they had three possible outcomes, not guilty, guilty of murder, or guilty of manslaughter in the first degree. During the 15 hours the jurors spent deliberating, they asked multiple times for parts of the trial to be read back to them. They seemed to be struggling to come to a unanimous decision. The judge urged them to keep deliberating and advised them to make their own decisions, but to also consider how the majority is voting as they tried to decide. When they came back with a verdict, I hate to say this, but it sounds like a compromise verdict, they found 19-year-old Peter Riley guilty of first-degree manslaughter. In Connecticut, first-degree manslaughter can occur in one of three ways— The first is that there was intent to cause injury, and that injury led to death. But you don't cut someone's throat with the intent to injure and not kill, so that doesn't fit. The second way is through reckless conduct showing extreme indifference to human life. Also not in line with what possibly happened here. It's not like Peter was swinging a blade around and accidentally killed his mother. The third option was that this was murder, however, under extreme emotional disturbance. But there was no evidence presented to show this was the case. And that's why I think those who were wavering on the verdict and didn't want to send a 19-year-old away for the rest of his life decided to compromise on murder. That is my non-professional opinion. Peter was then given a sentence of 6 to 16 years, though he was allowed to bond out pending his appeal. That's something we don't see happening as much today, especially in a case of a violent crime like this. But this isn't the first case I've seen in the 70s and 80s that did allow this. Peter's case had gotten the attention of some pretty famous people in the area after many came to believe he was wrongfully convicted. One of these people was playwright Arthur Miller, who lived in Roxbury, Connecticut. My international listeners may not know much about Miller, but his plays The Crucible and Death of a Salesman were on most required reading lists in American schools. He was also married to Marilyn Monroe for five years. These people with money and connections saw what they thought was a teenager being railroaded, and they contributed to the bail costs and also the cost of a new appellate attorney and a defense investigator. Peter lived with his friend Jeff's parents and was even allowed to go back to school to work towards graduating. That's how strongly Falls Village, Canaan, and most of Litchfield County believed in Peter Riley's innocence Even after being found guilty of a horrific murder, they had him back at school without issue. Another thing a literary giant like Arthur Miller could provide was media attention. Working with the New York Times, two articles were published in December 1975 that pointed towards the evidence of innocence, which was primarily, again, the timeline. The appeal ended up having three grounds. One was that the state failed to provide exculpatory material at the trial and the two other were both newly discovered evidence. The materials failed to be turned over were statements made by witnesses and others the police spoke with. Peter's defense asked for these statements prior to trial. Some of what they asked for had to do with a family in town called the Parmalees, The state only sent them one statement and it was from Judy Parmele. They didn't send any others, even though they had them. And that turned out to be a pretty big deal when in January, 1976, ahead of the hearing for the new trial, the fingerprint on the back door from the crime scene was matched to Timothy Parmalee, Judy's brother. That was one of the pieces of new evidence the defense said warranted a new trial. Timothy was only 16 at the time of the murder and his fingerprints were not on file until a month before the trial when he was arrested for stealing a car. His prints were only matched in 1976 because the police were specifically asked by the defense to check. And they wanted it checked because Peter said Barbara had issues With the family. According to Peter, Timothy had not been to his house for a while leading up to the murder because Barbara had banned both him and his brother Michael from coming over. Michael was 18 and a friend of Peter's, and he really regretted enlisting in the military. He wanted out, and he realized he would get a discharge if they thought he was gay. At the time, the military had a ban on gay service members. So Michael asked Peter and another friend if they would tell the army that Michael was gay and that they knew this for a fact. An army investigator went to the house to talk to Peter about this, and that's when Barbara found out about the scheme. She may have thought Michael was gay and that this wasn't some setup to get out of the military, because when Michael was discharged and returned to Falls Village, Barbara would taunt Michael, asking him things like, how are things in Fairyville? She ended up refusing to allow him and Timothy into the house. During the investigation into the murder, Michael was given an alibi from his then-girlfriend, who was ready to testify at the appeals hearing in the spring of 1976 that she lied. The woman named Sandra lived with Michael in a trailer not far from Barbara's house, She said that on the day of the murder, they went to Michael's parents' house and then home. Sandra initially told the police that Michael was home all night, but at this point, she's saying that he actually left around 8.45 in the evening and didn't return all night for 11 or 12 hours. Peter's original defense was not given Sandra's initial alibi for Michael or any statements made by Timothy, which the state had in their possession. The state's defense to this was that these items showed that the Parmelese didn't do it, and since that didn't point to Peter's innocence, they weren't required to turn them over. But the defense was saying that there was information in these statements, including names... That they could have investigated themselves if they had them. Another witness testified that she saw Timothy with around $55 after the murder, and he typically didn't carry that much money. Timothy's defense to this was that he had stolen the money from someone else, someone who wasn't Barbara Gibbons. The same witness testified at the hearing that she saw Timothy, Michael, and another young man outside the church across the street from Barbara's house on the night of her murder. The church had been a location of interest at one point because a tip came in that bloody clothes were hidden there. It was searched, but nothing was found. The defense also produced more evidence of the timeline. When Peter called his friend Jeff's family, the ones who had the ambulance, he spoke with Jeff's mother, Marion. Marion said that the call came in during a certain scene of the movie, Kelly's Heroes, which was airing on the network CBS. This was provided at the initial trial with an estimated time that it would have occurred. However, now they had a producer at CBS who could pinpoint the exact time that scene had broadcast and that was 9:50 p.m. The defense also called an expert who explained how and why Peter Riley was led to a false confession. The defense said this was new evidence they couldn't have had access to prior to the original trial because the assessments given to Peter were newly developed. The state had the chance to rebut the defense's case, of course. They had Timothy and Michael both testify they didn't have anything to do with the murder. Timothy said he was at his friend's house and then he went home around 9.30. He said he went right to bed and didn't wake up until 1 a.m. when a state trooper showed up at the house during the canvas of the neighborhood looking for witnesses. Timothy had also testified that he had been in the house a week or two before the murder, even though Barbara hadn't wanted him over. The state also undermined Sandra's credibility with other witnesses who called her a liar, basically, and then they had someone else who lived in that same small trailer say that Michael was there at 7 a.m. coming out of a bedroom, so he couldn't have been out until 8 a.m., like Sandra had said. This certainly wasn't a slam-dunk case against the Parmalee brothers, and I want to be clear on that, but the defense didn't need it to be. They just had to show that If the jury had this information, they may have come to a different verdict. They may have found that the Parmalee brothers were reasonable alternative suspects, or they may have discounted Peter's confession if they knew why he was susceptible to a false confession. The judge ruled in March 1976 that the fingerprint evidence, the evidence of the timeline, and the expert testimony were all enough to warrant a new trial but he went a step further and said Peter had suffered a grave injustice at the initial trial. So Peter Riley gets a new trial, and the prosecutor, John Bianchi, announced that he would be taking Peter back to court on the charge of manslaughter. He could no longer charge him for murder because he was acquitted of murder when he was convicted of the lesser charge, and due to double jeopardy, manslaughter or a charge below manslaughter were the only things on the table for Bianchi to charge Peter with. This case then took another turn in August of 1976, five months after Peter's successful appeal. John Bianchi died suddenly from a massive heart attack. The new prosecutor, Dennis Santori, said he would still proceed with the case, but then he found something in the case file, something that should have been turned over to the defense But it was not. After Barbara's murder, but prior to the trial, a state trooper contacted Bianchi and said he saw Peter on the night of the murder. Remember, Peter drove a very unique vehicle, a blue Corvette with a cloth top. On top of that, this trooper knew Peter, so he definitely recognized the car. The trooper said he was heading home when he passed Peter, who was on his way home from the youth center. Based on the time the trooper had clocked out of work and when he got home, which he said was just in time for a particular TV show to start, he would have seen Peter around 9.40 p.m. 9.40 is the same time the state had a nurse testify Peter called the emergency room. So this statement directly contradicted that. At best, Peter would have needed five minutes to get from the place he passed the trooper, to his house, and that's if we ignore dropping John off first. With dropping John off, which there were multiple witnesses to that time, Peter would have been home a little before 9.50, just like he said. Not only was this a massive Brady violation to not turn the statement over to the defense, it was now more new evidence. In November 1976, a judge dismissed the manslaughter charge against Peter, though he initially left the door open for Peter to be charged again in the future. But this case was still not over. The governor stepped in and asked the state police to do a reinvestigation into the murder of Barbara Gibbons. At the same time, a one-man grand jury investigation began, but this was looking at the entirety of the case, including the state's actions in how they investigated and tried Peter. In Connecticut at the time, there were two types of grand juries. They had what we usually think of when we think of a grand jury, a panel of jurors who hear evidence and vote whether to indict people or not. They only used those for capital cases. But the state also had these one-person investigative grand juries, usually run by a judge, that had the power that other investigators didn't have, like the ability to subpoena people. This was designed to be fact-finding. These one-man grand juries were restricted only four times when there was just no other way to get the information being sought, and since they were looking into the police and state attorney's office, I would say that's a pretty good idea to do it this way. So we have parallel investigations here, and the grand jury report was released in June 1997, and the reinvestigation report was released in October of the same year. The grand jury report said that there was not enough evidence to bring anyone to trial, whether Peter Riley or anyone else. Further, it condemned the mistakes made in the case by investigators and called some of it misconduct, but didn't recommend charges. The judge found that the state police did not pay enough attention to details while investigating and that they refused to budge on their view that Peter did it even when they were faced with contrary evidence. The judge called these errors in judgment, a misapplication of the law, and said that rights had been violated, but there would be no steps taken against any investigators for this. The only charges that came out of the grand jury were perjury charges for... Timothy Parmalee and his cousin, Frederick. They were accused of lying in their testimony to the grand jury in regards to the first wallet stolen from Barbara's house a week or two before her death. Timothy had denied stealing it, but later confessed. Timothy pleaded guilty pretty much right away on this charge and got one year in jail with six months suspended and two years of probation. Frederick said he was the victim of circumstance, he didn't want to get wrapped up in a murder investigation, and Timothy had given him $20 to just keep quiet about the theft. He also pleaded guilty and got 180 days, but only had to serve 30, and the rest was suspended. So the first wallet was stolen by Timothy Parmalee, which proves he was in the house before the murder. That may help explain the fingerprint, and this is one of the reasons I've said before that we can know that someone is lying without knowing why. Timothy lied about being in the house initially, so was it because he was there the night of the murder as well, or was it because he had stolen the first wallet and didn't want to get in trouble for that? Sometimes people lie during one investigation to cover up their involvement in an entirely different crime. However, a second wallet went missing from the home on the night Barbara was murdered. I'm not saying that because Timothy stole one wallet, he must have stolen them both, but it does raise suspicions that we have two similar thefts within a week or two. Though, of course, snagging a wallet off a table is a far cry from a brutal attack and murder like what happened to Barbara. The grand jury also identified five potential suspects with motive, means, and opportunity. These names were put onto a list and provided to the state's attorney under seal, so we do not know who was on it. We could speculate, but we won't, and we do know that Peter's name was not on that list. As for the reinvestigation that was occurring at the same time done by the state police, they came to the complete opposite conclusion. Captain Thomas MacDonald announced that it was an inescapable conclusion that Peter Riley was the sole perpetrator in the murder of his mother. The 58-page report provided a new theory to the crime, and it's certainly a theory. Let's get into it. On the night of the murder, according to this theory, Peter arrived home from the youth center. Using the timeline provided by the state trooper, you know, the one that was tucked away by the prosecution and never given to the defense, using that timeline, they determined that Peter could have been home by 9.43 if he drove a sustained 90 miles per hour in a car with a bad transmission. Driving a fast but more reasonable speed, he could have been home by 9.46, when Peter got home, Barbara came outside, or perhaps she was already outside. The two got into an argument, probably about the car, which is something they did argue about. Barbara ended up standing in the path of the car when the Corvette moved, knocking her over. The rear of the car then went over her, breaking both her legs and her ribs. Peter then, instead of calling for help, dragged or carried Barbara inside and into the bedroom. The investigation determined that the blood evidence indicated that Barbara was sitting up without her pants on when her throat was slashed. So they said Peter took Barbara's pants off while she was sitting up and then attacked her with the knife. The state police in this report were openly contradicting the original medical examiner who said Barbara's legs were broken post-mortem and they were also contradicting four different doctors who all said her legs were broken after her throat was slashed. The investigator said it happened the other way around, and their evidence was that the blood on her legs wasn't disturbed. The investigation also concluded that Barbara had her head turned to the right for about 10 minutes where it rested on something rectangular. Then her head was turned to the left. The rectangular object could have been the missing wallet. If someone had turned Barbara's head 10 minutes after the attack, it could only have been Peter, since he said Barbara was still breathing when he first came in. It would have taken her five to six minutes after the attack to die at most, so Peter put himself in the house during the time her head was supposedly repositioned. The report also stated that Peter attacked his mother and then called for help before stabbing her for the final time, cleaning the knife, and putting it away in the kitchen. Peter then washed up and possibly changed into clothes nearly identical to the ones he was last seen in at the youth center. He stashed the clothes somewhere before the first person arrived at the scene a little after 10 p.m., Some of the evidence to support the fight run over murder theory was that Barbara's doctor did say she was agitated when he spoke to her on the phone and her blood alcohol level was 0.22. So she may have been ready to argue when Peter showed up home. They also said that the muffler of Peter's car had a cloth impression in it that matched the twill of Barbara's pants. This type of impression wouldn't have lasted long with the car being driven, so it had to have happened after Peter got home. They also said they found evidence of a handprint on the tire wall. The print wasn't clear enough to definitively match, but Barbara could not be excluded as a possible match. There were also crescent-shaped abrasions on Barbara's body, including above both knees, The distance from the wound on the left leg to the wound on the right leg was the same width as the Corvette tires. And these crescent wounds and the measurements were known at the time of trial. A state trooper had already noticed them and was ready to testify about it. However, he was never put on the stand. The prosecution was not pursuing the car-ran-her-over theory, And a big part of that was because it contradicted the medical examiner's testimony that her legs were broken post-mortem. And this is one of those things about this reinvestigation that caught my attention was that there was not a lot of new information discovered. The majority of it they had at the time of the trial. This was just a different way to interpret the information and put it together. But there were problems in this report. Not all of the information in it was entirely accurate. When this report, called the McDonald Report, was released, the state attorney, Dennis Santori, called it contrived and subjective. It was criticized for coming to a conclusion first, that Peter did it, and then making the evidence fit. The report had so little support from the state attorney's office and even the governor's office that it was withdrawn, citing inconsistencies with it. One of the biggest contradictions for me is that the police want to say that it was nearly impossible for someone to have killed Barbara in the 10 to 15 minutes from the call with her doctor until Peter walked in the door. Yet it was totally reasonable to believe that Peter did it in five minutes after getting home after driving 90 miles per hour and then proceeded to completely clean up all of the evidence that would implicate him while also making five consecutive phone calls. How can you rule one of those timelines improbable and the other one totally possible? It doesn't make sense. The final blow to the case against Peter Riley came in November 1977 after the reinvestigation. A judge granted a motion that officially cleared Peter and prevented him from ever being prosecuted in the case. In spite of all the attention on this case over the years, no charges have been brought against anyone for the murder of Barbara Gibbons, even though, according to the judge conducting the grand jury, there were five possible suspects. Peter Riley spoke out about wrongful convictions and the means police used to elicit confessions from vulnerable suspects. But for the most part, he has gone on to live a quiet life with the hope that one day his mother's murder will be solved. Hopefully, he and the others who cared for Barbara found their time somewhere in the last five decades to grieve and mourn because the first several years were taken up by Peter's legal battle to clear his name. As Mickey Maddow said to Joan Barthol in her book, Death in Canaan, when this happened, everyone said, poor Peter. No one said, poor Barbara. But after Peter Riley was exonerated, the time to reflect and remember Barbara Gibbons finally came. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok.